Well, let's open our Bibles to Mark's Gospel. It is estimated that a person over the course of their life averaging, if the average lifespan of Americans is about 78.3 years, according to current statistics, that you will have encountered, met approximately 80,000 people in, your, in that period of time, just average numbers. 80,000 people that you would have met in some form or measure. Uh, now, if you think about it, what, out of those many people that you've met, how many would you, again, think about the possible number of that you had a direct influence in some measure, maybe great family member, mentoring, discipling, or something like that, or maybe, you know, just some influence of giving somebody directions. All right, you go down here and you turn. I mean, in any kind of influence, you figure... 1% is 800, and if you cut that in half, 400, I mean, out of the lifetime, the possibility that you could have a direct influence in, the, in direction, in some measure, of, you know, 400 people, even cut that in half, 200, that still is a lot of people that their lives are affected or were affected by something you said something you did, some investment. That's a lot of people that we have the potential of influencing in our life. Have you ever seen any of these experiments? I was looking at a few of them uh, on YouTube last night, and I thought about showing one, but it just, I didn't find one that, I, that was short enough that I, that I liked. But it, it's some kind of experiment that sometimes universities do it over uh, person's behavior. The one that I was looking at, and there's a few, there's two mainly. One was like in this waiting room, like a doctor's waiting room. And there were certain, you know, let's say there was uh, 15 people in there. And um, say 10 of them are plants. They're part of the experiment. And at different times, they'll just randomly stand up. They'll just randomly stand up. And then the people who are in on it, you can see their face, they're kind of, and then they just, they kind of stand up. You know, that they're, they're influenced by that behavior. The funniest one, and I don't think it was intended to be funny, it was just showing how people uh, respond to influential stimulus or whatever was this camera on this elevator. And you had these three girls, uh, you know, college age, and when they got on, they got on the elevator they faced the wall, not the door. And so somebody got on, and they're, you know, Nat, you know, you're on an elevator, you face the door by the numbers, and, and they're all three of them just standing there facing the wall. And this went on in a few flights, then that person kind of laughed, and they found they were turning around, and they were going to face the wall like they like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I guess that's what we're supposed to do. You get the idea, is that influence comes in all sorts of different ways. Our whole culture media is geared to influencing you to buy something that you're not really inclined to buy or even want. Have you ever bought, you know, there are some people who are very good salesmen. My brother Michael is a very good salesman. 
The old cliche, he will sell a refrigerator to the Eskimos. He will, I mean, he can, he has made his career and as God has blessed him financially and he is a gifted persuader and a salesperson. And you and I, maybe there's a few exceptions, there have been times that we've come away from some encounter with somebody and bought something and we're like, I don't know why I just bought this. I don't even want this thing, you know? And, and yet they were so good. Maybe they made you feel, made you kind of feel guilty, you know, that they're, you know, that because you didn't buy this or what. You get the idea. We've all, we all influence and we all have been influenced in some measure. Well, just with that thought in the background, we come to Mark chapter 9. Let me just kind of set this up a little bit. Uh, we're going to be looking primarily at verses, verse 42, and we'll read that in just a moment. But just to kind of give you a little context of Mark chapter 9, Jesus now, uh, Mark chapter 9, the, at start out at the beginning was the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus took two of his disciples and uh, there was, uh, or three of his disciples, and they went up onto the mountain and Jesus was glorified in their presence. His, they saw what we would call His deity, His, his godness. Uh, up to this point, they've only related to Him on a very earthly level, but then they certainly are witnessed the healings and miracles and those type of things. But now they saw Him in this entirely different, magnificent vision. Not vision, I mean, it was a literal, and they saw... Jesus, and, and he glorified him. They got an aspect of who he is in his totality. And that's really pivotal in the storyline of the Gospels because where we see things moving is that Jesus now is... I mean, he's always been moving towards the cross, but now things are starting to pick up and the intensity of persecution and attack and hatred is moving even faster And so one of the things that we find in the disciples is they're not always consistent in their view and understanding of who Jesus is. We talked about that. At one point, remember, they were in the the boat and there was a storm raging and they were fearful and they, Jesus, don't you care? Aren't you going to do anything? And he says to the storm, peace be still. And they went from being fearful of the storm now to being fearful of who is this man? And that's after they had witnessed miracles and, and his teaching, et cetera, et cetera. One of the plate where we came here in chapter 9 on this, uh, in just putting this a little bit in context, is that uh, if you look at verse 34 of chapter 9, that after that glorious event of seeing Jesus in his fullness as, as God glorified, as, they, as they're walking along, they're, they're, they're arguing amongst themselves, what? Who's going to be the greatest? My goodness, are you still don't get how things are working in this kingdom of God? So even they're arguing and discussing among themselves how they fit in and who's going to be the greatest when they just witness the greatest in this vision. You know the reason I, I, I love the disciples is because I see myself in the disciples. We have this idea that, you know, kind of like some of those pictures, they're walking around with little glows and halos on their head. No, they're, they're very earthy. They're very, I mean, the moment of Jesus' uh, praying, uh, uh, sweating droplets of, of blood in his prayer, and what are they doing? They're taking a nap. 
I mean, very human. And here they're arguing. And Jesus, you know what a teachable moment is? If you have children or, you know, you take the moment and, okay, I can either pull the crisis mode or I can use this as a teachable moment. That's kind of maybe a nice way of dealing with the crisis. But Jesus, in verse uh, 35 through 37, and we talked about this last week when we talked about servanthood, Jesus took this discussion and instead of being aggravated at him, like maybe you and I might be, he, he uses as a teachable moment. In verse 35 through 37, it says that he sat down and called the 12. I kind of had this idea that he sat down and said, guys, come here. Like, do we have to go over this again? All right, it doesn't say that, but that's my word. He said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Verse 35. And then it says in verse 36, he took a child and put him... In the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, in a few weeks, we'll be in chapter 10, and we'll see that when uh, some children came or were trying to come to Jesus, we see the disciples trying to shoo them away. So they're not real quick to, to pick up on some of the things that Jesus is teaching here, but he's instructing them about being a servant. So verse 41, and I hope you have your Bibles to Mark 9. Now, this is the verse we'll look at in just a minute. We're getting there. But Jesus is teaching that the way to become great in the kingdom of God is by serving the least. Verse 41 of chapter 9, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The path in the kingdom of God, the path to the top, is, is, is through a humility of serving those who cannot give anything back. You know, it's easy to serve people when there's kind of a reciprocal quid pro quo. You know, we've kind of heard that with some of the emails, issues going out. Quid pro quo. You're like, what's a quid? That means... I'm doing this because I want something back. I'll do this. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You know That's easy to do. What's not so easy, what Jesus is telling us, is when you do something, even sacrificially, for someone who doesn't have the capacity or resources to benefit you back. They might even say thank you and just walk away indifferent. And yet Jesus says... That's kind of where I want you to go. And so this is something that the disciples, those disciples and we disciples, we need to be reminded of, of the kingdom mentality of serving. That's the context. When we come to verse 42, go ahead and put uh, the title of the message this morning, is Jesus' instruction on influence. We're going to talk about the, 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 what Jesus says about our ability to influence and some warnings that we need to be mindful of in our influence to other people. We'll talk about that in a minute. But look with me at verse 42. You can remain seated, and it should, it'll be on the screen. One verse this morning, verse 42, reads, Whoever, Jesus says, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it influences our life. We should be more influenced by your word. God, may your word conform us to kingdom values today. Convict us of those sinful ways and those errors in our life that we need to bring in conformity to your will, to your standard by your word today. May above all things, Jesus be glorified. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like many of you, I'm a father, have uh, five children, and how many grandchildren now? Five? Six, almost. uh, uh, One on the way in May. And uh, as a parent, as a father, uh, I have two boys. Sherry has two daughters and a son, but they're all our kids. And as a dad, even when my boys were little growing up, you know, as a parent, you're seeking to protect them. You, you watch, hopefully you uh, did this, even if you weren't a, a Christian. You just, you know, there was little friends and influences that were around your house that you didn't find always helpful, right? Especially when your child started using vocabulary words that they didn't learn in school. And you're like, where did you get that? Uh, well, you know, Tom, whatever. And you, or you maybe now you need to know because you heard, you've heard it yourself. So you wanted to make sure that you protected your children. You wanted to make sure that they were protected from bad influences or, or people that might would do them harm or in situations where they may be led astray. And so there were oftentimes as parents, we kind of had to, to, to play, that, uh, play that role. If you want to be good with me, then do good to my children. Fair? If you want to be on my bad side... Just do something to my kids or or something that's going to be harmful to them. And so you can imagine that in this passage that Jesus uses the example of a child as an example. He's not just talking about children, even though he uses a child. And there's other places where he says that if you would come unto me or, or the kingdom of God is like, a child. In other words, there's a trust, there's an innocence, and he uses that metaphor, that picture of a child. But I think what it helps us to do, and we're talking in the context of servanthood, is by Jesus using this child, it gives us a glimpse of the heart of God in connecting it to our influence to another of God's children. We're all God's children. And so if we want to be Uh, if I could say it this way, even though it probably isn't theologically exactly the way I'd want to say it, if you want to be on God's good side, be good to his kids. Is everybody dead here? Am I right? Is that that right? Yeah. Remember he said, hey, when you did this unto me, you know, when you gave him a drink, you gave him, you did, did it unto me. If you want to be on God's bad side, and I realize that's theologically loaded, so don't, don't hold me to it, but you get the point. Just start mistreating his, his kids. I mean, and so we see a little glimpse here of what God says and through Christ, the Son of God, what's he doing? He's teaching his disciples, his followers, because he realizes they got some rough edges and he's going to leave them. The Holy Spirit's going to come, Acts chapter 2, but, but, they, but he's trying to teach them and instruct them on what it means to be a citizen of of the kingdom of God. Remember, he's just overhearing them argue about who's the greatest and who's going to 
be the number one guy in the kingdom? And who's going to sit? Remember their mom, James and John, their mom wanted to put them on the right and on the left. And he's trying to say, look, that's not the way things operate and the things run. So let's focus in on verse 42 this morning. And I want us this morning to uh, consider five areas in how, what this looks like at being a person of influence. And before, again, I go into those, let me just kind of finish up one thought here. Put the verse back up there, if you would, verse 42. Jesus said, whoever causes, or we could say influences, one of these little ones. And as I said, this isn't just talking about children, even though he uses a child as an example, but it's anyone that perhaps might be a person who either because of their physical maturity or spiritual maturity or whatever, that they are, they, um, are in a situation that they could be misguided because of something we might say or do. Are you with me? So the, just keep that as a picture. The, uh, uh, the King James uh, says, whoever shall offend one of these little ones. Uses the word offend. The New King James says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to be, who believes in me to stumble. In other words, the word there that the King James says offend or stumble or the ESV says to sin. I think that the ESV is really kind of more at the, the heart of what Jesus is saying that anyone who influences one of these little ones, a person, to sin... He's saying that that that's a serious thing. He's saying, in fact, it would be better to use a a picture that they were probably familiar with to have a millstone tied around their neck and and, and thrust into the the, the sea. And you're like, well, what's a millstone? Literally, a millstone is literally called a donkey stone. You're like, a donkey stone? What is that? It referred to a heavy stone that a donkey pulled that was tied to this donkey in order to crush grain, to grind grain. It was a very heavy, heavy stone. So you get the picture. Jesus said in in a bit of a hyperbole, but he was making the point, it's better that you wrap yourself with this stone because once you're jumping into the water, there's no way out. In other words, it's better, better to do something like that than Jesus says to offend or to cause one of my little ones, or to cause someone who might be young, weak in the faith, you you fill in the the, the blanks there, to cause one of them not just stumble, not to be confused, but actually to sin. Jesus says that's influence gone bad. That's negative influence. And as my followers, you need to be careful what you say, what you do, and how you live. Now, Again, this isn't in the, the text, so I'm, I'm dabbling a little bit into the white space a little bit. But I just wonder, as you had maybe these disciples, maybe it was the three that went on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe it was Peter, uh, I mean, James and John, as I said earlier, because their mother, remember, they brought them to Jesus and wanted to kind of make sure they had a good spot. And maybe as they these people uh, were talking along the way about who was going to be the greatest, the others were hearing what they were saying. 
these spiritual giants or these leaders, and most people ask, uh, well, the reason that Jesus took Peter, James, and John on the mountain of transfiguration is more than likely is because they were the primary leaders of the disciples. There are some disciples that you do not see their name outside from the time that they're picked. But you see these, and you see Peter is the, the, the mouthpiece often, is the one that's the spokesman. You see uh, John in a very prominent role. And so most people assume that these are the leaders among the leaders. Okay? Makes sense? So what is he maybe calling them out and saying, listen, do you realize that what you're saying and the distortion of truth that you're sitting around jabbering about, others who aren't in your role and do not have the spiritual privileges that you have, they're hearing what you're saying. And that's not good. Because what you're saying is contrary to kingdom values. The Bible says, and speaking about Israel, but I don't think it's too big of a stretch, in Zechariah 2.8, that God defends His people when He says that you t- whoever touches His people touch the apple of His eye. Now, obviously, in immediate context, that's Israel, but it, it can be, it's all of God's people, I believe. Yeah, there is a problem, but it's all of God's people that ties in, I believe, with what we're saying. In other words, you do something against God's people, it's like sticking your finger, poking your finger in God's eye. You touch the very sensitive part of who I am. God takes our influence. That's what I want you to hear. God takes our influence. What we say, what we do, what we, how we act, God takes that very seriously because He says, if your actions, if your words cause another to sin, the extreme measure of hit the picture of taking a millstone and jumping in the water with, with this death, a horrible, horrible example. He said, you're better off that way than doing and offending Let's look at these five things, five areas of consideration that we need to be mindful of as we seek to apply the teaching of Jesus. I want to I apply what Jesus says, right? I, I want to be, be that. I don't want to be that disciple that gets called out to special meetings with you. I mean, I want to be in line with kingdom values, right? Do you? All right? So let's look at these real quick. Number one, how can we... Uh, fall into this? What are some areas or warnings? Number one is directly influencing or tempting others to sin. Pretty obvious. In other words, that's a sin of commission. I deliberately do something that is going to cause another person to sin. That's a deliberate, willful act. Case study, Satan in the garden, right? What did he do? He intentionally sought... Two, and he was successful in tempting Adam and Eve to reject God's word. Did God really say? And so you don't have to listen. You don't have to obey. God knows that when you do this, you'll be like him. So he's kind of holding out on you. What was Satan doing? What is his, if he's the father of all lies and he's behind all this, what is he always trying to get God's people to do is to fall and to reject 
God's will, God's word, and to engage in sin or to violate His, his word, His law. And then what might He get somebody who might not even be a believer or a person who is a very uh, immature believer who's not grounded in Scripture to instigate and cause them to lead another person astray. Remember Job's wife? When all of Job's troubles and she said, you know what, Job, you ought to curse God and what? That's not good advice, guys, all right? And uh, not picking on any gender there, but just we'll let that go, all right? (laughs) Uh, There's a king in the Bible by the name of Jeroboam. Israel had some really rotten kings. I mean, they had David, but they had some real losers. And uh, in 1 Kings 15, don't turn to it, just an example, is that this was a king that in the Word it clearly says that this king led God's people into sin. If you've been on our uh, study on Wednesday nights, we've looked at this, we're looking at the seven churches in Revelation. Two of them that we've already looked at, Pergamum, remember what it says? It says that the Lord Jesus says, I have this against you because, uh, and don't worry about the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak, but he says, but you, you sympathize or you allow this false teaching that is intended to put a stumbling block before the children of God. Just like this Balaam in the Old Testament, and you can read that in, in another time, that you tolerate, he's telling this to the church at Pergamum, you tolerate a like sin, you tolerate it, even though the end result of this sin is that it, it causes my people and pushes them towards sin. Jesus calls that church out for doing that. And he's still calling out any church or quote-unquote, I'm not sure it's a real church that would do that. The last week we looked at the church at Thyatira. Unlike Pergamum that was just kind of indifferent, Thyatira embraced it. They were sleeping with the enemy. They were a worldly church. And the Bible says that, that you allow my, this false prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality. It wasn't like the church at Pergamon where they just tolerated, they didn't want to deal with it. Boy, churches get in trouble when they just sweep stuff under the rug and don't want to deal with sin, right? Big problem. That was kind of Pergamon. Thyatira, they didn't care. They just openly embraced it. They, they advertised it. They, they, were, they were fully engaged, and, and Jesus says, I'm calling you out because this false teaching is pushing and causing my servants to commit sin. Are we directly influencing or tempting anybody to sin? We will be held accountable to that. Look at the second suggestion area here of application. Is that people can be led into sin indirectly by my actions. If the first one were sins of commission, those are deliberate actions then there's also sins of omission. In other words, because of my unwillingness to be faithful and obedient, uh, give me an example. When we treat others in an insensitive, unloving, unkind way, we can be a catalyst to cause them to sin in rebellion or anger. We might spark an angry reaction because of our inability to be Christ-like, to be humble, to deny self. Well, wait a minute, you don't know. 
I was right here. Well, you may be right, but you may be wrong in your application of what you're doing. Has that ever happened to you? It happened to me a bunch. Still live to tell about it. Give you an example, Colossians 3.21. Paul says to fathers, to dads, okay? Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, Ephesians, he, he says the same thing, but he says it a little differently. Ephesians 6.4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dads, because sometimes dads can be a little hard-headed, a little insensitive, my way or the highway. You made your bed, now you're going to sleep in it. I'm quoting my father, by the way, okay? my <laughs> earthly father who's in heaven. <laughs> sometimes dads were guilty of provoking the Lord says, do not provoke, doesn't say don't correct, don't be a godly father, but don't provoke them in a way, don't indirectly by your actions that are insensitive or your words or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it, don't provoke them in that way to anger. So the implication is, is that by something I might do as a father, I might could easily provoke my child to respond in a sinful way. Are you with me? Are we tracking, as Matt Chandler likes to say? I always want to say that, but everybody knows where we got it. Proverbs 51 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Some of my biggest foils have been because... I have not bridled my tongue, as James says. Quick to speak. No, don't be quick to speak. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. There's wisdom there. In Galatians, Paul says, Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, and sometimes these moments give us opportunity, he says, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, especially those who are the household of faith. So I need to be careful that my sinful omission and being insensitive and different, oh, I might not have done anything intentionally, but because I did not respond or act in a godly fashion and I was passive, then that could be an area where I might, a person in my sphere of influence, might be led into sin because of something I didn't necessarily do, but... It was omitted. Thirdly, people can be led into sin by my hypocrisy. Well, I don't want to go to church because the church is full of... Come on. All right. Do you, you're never going to go to the dentist because that dentist, I know he lied one time. He's a big hypocrite. He told me to clean my teeth and when he was hanging over me, his teeth ain't so clean either. So he's a hypocrite. He's a phony. You know that guy that works in my yard or landscape or whatever? You ever see his yard? Oh, he's a hypocrite. I'm never mowing my grass again. I'm not going to pay anybody to do it. Oh, come on. Listen, the church, the true church has never claimed, true church has never claimed perfection. 
but we worship and serve a perfect God. Amen? So, but, but here's the point is I've got to evaluate that is there, is there areas in my life that are hypocritical? We talked about the word hypocrite comes from the Greek theater, which means two-faced. You ever seen the little icon logo of, of drama? It's a mask of a happy face and a sad face. The hypocrite in the Greek was, it means two-faced. And so am I two-faced? Am I one way? My one way at church, I got, didn't just put on my church clothes, but I put on my church facade and I kind of act churchy. You know who sees right through that? And we wonder why our kids are AWOL is the children. They see the phony baloney stuff that oftentimes Christians do, fighting and arguing when they pull in the parking lot. And as soon as they open the door, angels are singing, clouds are descending, and they walk in like the Holy of Holies. And when they get out there, World War III goes back on when the car goes out of the parking lot. The children pick up on that. You know what they say? Oh, okay, I see how this game is played. And so we raise them up through our student ministry and youth group. And you know what we often do? We raise really good, competent Pharisees. You okay? <laughs> I wouldn't embarrass just anybody, Karen, but I knew you would enjoy that. I'll edit it out of the message. I don't know. I might leave it in there because... You hear what I'm saying? We raise very... You know, what, what do we do? We school them in behavior and action that we do here, but it doesn't really have any effect at home or on the job or real life. There's like... It's, it's hypocritical. I'm reminded of what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. I'll just read it. But he's giving him some wise counsel, and Timothy being a younger man, more than likely pastoring older folks that are older than him, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Be an example in conduct. Not just that you got your theological uh, systematic library all sharp, but be an example in the how you live, the way you talk, the way you dress. People will judge you right or wrongly on those things. But the bigger issue isn't just putting on a great front. The bigger issue is, is that what they see you here is the same person, relatively speaking, that they're going to see at home. Someone said that true character is manifested when no one is looking. How do you respond when no one is looking? How do you respond if... Men, when you go out of town and no one is around. How do you respond when your kids see maybe something that you're shuffling an extra something under the plate because you don't... I remember reading a true story of this guy who was doing an interview with one of these Fortune 500 companies and they went down... One of the presidents or vice presidents of the company was in charge of hiring and they went down to the company cafeteria... And they were in line getting to eat, and pretty much everything was a done deal. And the guy looked over and saw him slide a few extra, I don't know if it was butter. You remember they used to charge? Anybody remember cafeterias? You know, Piccadilly, Luby's. Anybody remember all those? Before all these other places. And he saw him basically trying to slide it under the plate as if he wouldn't be charged for it. 
And immediately the, the vice president saw, if he's going to rip me off for a nickel slab of butter, what's he going to do when he's dealing with thousands and thousands of dollars? He didn't get the job. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians 2 to show you an example. The Bible, you know, one of the testimonies that to me shows that the Bible unlike the Koran that they believe just kind of fell out of the sky from Allah, the Bible was written by real human beings. The Bible says, guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit. But to me, one of the tests that to me makes the Bible authentic, among many, many others, is the fact that the Word of God includes, in people's lives, includes warts and all. Because if me and Pastor Chris were going to sit down and write a new Bible... We'd keep all our mistakes out of there, and if you paid us enough, we might keep yours out. I mean, we want a pristine religion, right? No. You know what? The Bible from cover to cover is a testimony of our failure, and yet a God who redeemed us out of our failure and brokenness. It's all there. It's all there. And in Galatians chapter 2, I want to show you an example here. Here's what's going on. The church at Galatia has got these false teachers there. And they were saying that you need to come under the Jewish law to really be Christian. Okay? Something similar that the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15 had to deal with. And so there's these false teachers that are coming there. And they were these religious Jews. They weren't denying Jesus, but they were saying, you need Jesus. Every cult does this, by the way. You need Jesus plus our special enlightened teaching or whatever it is. Well, these Jews were saying, oh, we're not denying Jesus. But it's Jesus plus you need to come under the Jewish law, the dietary laws, the circumcision, Sabbath, moons, all those things you, you need to come under. Whereas the Bible says that Jesus has freed us from the law. We're now under, under that old covenantal system. So that's kind of what's going on here at Galatia. Now you have an issue here that, that Paul records in Scripture of a situation because Peter went up to this region in Galatia and he was up there sharing the gospel and et cetera, et cetera. And he was up there. And when he was up there, he was just enjoying hanging out with all these Gentiles. What did that mean? That means he could eat shellfish and flounder and crab legs. And they had pig roasts. I don't know what all they had. But it was all the stuff a good Jewish boy wasn't allowed to eat under the old covenant. Remember God? He had to have that vision from God and said what God has, has said is clean. You know, don't you call unclean. He, he had a revelation problem was when these false teachers probably from Jerusalem started coming up there spreading their false doctrine you know what Peter did he kind of pulled away like oh, I don't know those people I never went over their house I mean he kind of and Paul calls him out on this look with me at verse 11 Galatians 2 the ESV says Cephas but when Cephas that's Peter came to Antioch non-Jewish, Gentile region. Paul says, I opposed him to his face. I got in his face, man. He stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that's down in Jerusalem, saying they came from Pastor James, who was the, considered the pastor of the Jerusalem church. These people came from that claiming to be from James. Peter was eating with the Gentiles, non-Jews. But when they, these religious folks that were spreading this false teaching, when they came, what did he do? He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's these 
Judaizers. And the rest of the... Look at this, verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted... What's the word if you have the ESV? Acted hypocritically along with Him. Even so... Now here's a... Here's an example of what we're talking about. That because of Peter's hypocrisy, the latter part of verse 13 says that even Barnabas was what? Led astray because of their hypocrisy. Can people be led by my hypocrisy? You know, there's, there's an area that seems to be a problem in the New Testament, and I think it's also an issue here. Maybe even those when we talk about grace, is grace, my friend, is not a license to sin. Somehow because you say, well, we're all under grace. Well, as a born-again believer, yes. But that doesn't give you a license to abuse and to sin and just think, oh, well, we're all forgiven anyway. That, you know, it doesn't matter what I do, who I sleep with, whatever, we're all under grace. No, 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 you have no concept of grace if that is your mentality. And if you remember in our study in Revelation, the sin of the Nicolaitans, that was the issue, that was their false teaching that Jesus called out in the first church that he mentions in Revelation 2 of Ephesus. Paul said something I think is wise for us to hear. And it's in 1 Corinthians 6.12. Just listen to it, but write the reference down because I think it's something we need to, be, we need to keep in mind. And this is what a mature believer who knows the truth understands. Paul said, all things are lawful for me. All things, hey, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful or expedient. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Let me read it to you from the message paraphrase. You know what the message paraphrase is good for devotional reading? The message paraphrases it this way. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean it's spiritually appropriate. I'm going to read that again. Just because something is technically legal, well, we're under grace. I can do whatever I want. It doesn't mean it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around, Paul says in this paraphrase, if I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, he said, I'd actually be a slave to my whims. So he says, it really shows that I'm really not free at all. But I'm actually a slave to what my whims are. Here's the, here's the, the point. As a redeemed believer, we have great liberty in Jesus. You're not going to find a little list of what kind of music you can listen to and what kind of movies you can go to. Because you, you know the thing about list-oriented Christianity is you can learn to keep the list and think you're righteous. You can, you, can, you, can keep the, you can check the boxes all pretty good and think that you're right before God. As a redeemed believer, I have great, great liberty in Jesus. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. However, and this is something I, I won't take time to read, but at Romans 14, we talked about this on Wednesday, had a good discussion on this on Romans 14 about 
about the weaker brother and, and our activity. He said, and the point is, is that if a, uh, if a lesser spiritual, lesser mature believer sees me doing things that in their heart that they are convicted are wrong, and I encourage them to sin against their conscience, guess what? I'm guilty of leading that person astray. Well, they just need to grow up. They just need to learn that... They, no, 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 no. If it, is a, if it is a violation to their conscience, you who are spiritual, Paul says in Romans 14, need to be so spiritual that you don't have to force your freedom down their throat. Oh, I could give lots of examples, but I'm afraid I would venture on. That's, that's the thing. We want to start giving examples. Let the Holy Spirit work that in you Am I using my freedom to call and to be hypocritical and to create this double standard? And, and so we'll leave it at that. Number four, people can be led into sin. These are all kind of looped together in many ways. People can be led into sin because I failed to lead them toward righteousness. You're not spiritual enough to give them good, wise counsel. So therefore, you're not helpful to them. You're not helpful. Here's, what I, here's the, the, the example. That is my advice to a friend, neighbor, coworker, child, is my advice coming from the Word of God or is it coming from some episode I saw on Dr. Phil? You laugh because sometimes I've been around, you know, Christians a while. Sometimes you can't, they blend it all together. Well, is that from peanuts or is that from a proverb? (laughs) Saw it somewhere. Can't remember. Can I just be pastoral for a minute? I am shocked at some of the advice that I've heard believers in churches that I pastored. This one not accept, uh, this included. Shocked at some of the advice that I've heard another believer give to another believer concerning a spiritual issue in their life that was horrible. Bad advice. Bad counsel. Not Christian and even the most remote way. I don't want to be, and you don't want to be, one who leads someone astray because you fail to lead them toward righteousness. How do I fail to lead them toward righteousness? It's because I myself am not being schooled in righteousness. And therefore, I can only, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the abundance of my heart is just a hodgepodge of Oprah and Dr. Phil and Grandma Jones and Aunt Susie and this whatever, well, I've lived a long life, I know, blah, 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 who cares? I want to know, wait, this is the only thing that has stood the test of time. This is the only sure thing that I can rely on. This culture is going to hell in a handbasket, but the word of the Lord is forever. It is eternal. I need the eternal counsel and wisdom. People say, I need a word from the Lord. Well, let me tell you, there are 66 chapters of the word of the Lord. Get into it and start hearing God speak into your life. 
Sometimes leading somebody in righteousness in counsel might mean telling them something that you know they're not going to like. It isn't going to be what they want to hear. It's contrary to everything their flesh and, you know, and I've talked to eight people and they all agree. Well, I don't care. If you are a Christian, then you need to be giving them the counsel of God's Word. Proverbs 26, uh, 27.6, Wounds from a sincere friend are better than the many kisses from an enemy. Don't be a kissing enemy to them. Because if you're giving bad counsel, you're an enemy who's kissing them. James says, not many of you should become teachers. And I think even a person who says, well, you know, the Bible says... Well, does the Bible really say? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach, and I would even say those who speak on behalf of God in in this fashion will be judged with greater strictness. There's an accountability. But the wisdom from above is first purer than peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. One of the things that I think is rooted in this is because we have no understanding of the gospel for our own lives and we have this performance-oriented type of works-based Christianity and so that's how we kind of school people in this. If you do not know or feel that you can adequately answer a person who's needing spiritual counsel, find someone who does. Don't wing it. Don't give them bad counsel that you cannot support. They're making life-changing decisions. You want to make sure that you're accurate. If you're not sure, find somebody who is. Seek their counsel and say, "Will will you help me in this? And last... And again, this is all kind of interrelated. People can be led away through false doctrine, false teaching. And it really kind of goes with the other because I have been around Christians. In fact, I one person in the church I was pastoring in one class was getting ready to start and they were excited about this new Bible that they had. I said, oh, really? He said, oh, yeah, just, man, just... Just really opens things up. I said, oh, okay, let me see it. As soon as they pulled it out, I knew, I knew what it was. And they pulled it out and handed it to me. I said, do you realize this is a Jehovah's Witness Bible? Really? Well, I've been reading their literature for years. I didn't know. This is like a member of the church. You've been reading the Watchtower and that garbage for years? And there's not any discernment? My goodness. You say, well, I don't read that. Yeah, but we download all sorts of stuff off the television and figure if it's the number 10 best-selling book in the Christian bookstore, it must be okay. It may not be okay. We need a healthy ability to have discernment among God's people. Why? What are we talking about? So that I do not become a conduit, a catalyst to lead these little ones to stumble in error because of something I have said or something I have done or something I have counseled. Colossians 
And I'll close with this. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies. You get that? That's Colossians 2.8 in the New Living Translation. Don't let anyone capture you. You ever seen someone who's been deluded by false doctrine or false teaching? Have you ever talked or conversed with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or even somebody in another pseudo-Christian cult? And they are so enamored that it's hard to get through. But let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit knows no barrier. Don't you be rude. Don't you slam doors. Don't you say anything ugly. You be a Christian. You be an example And you pray that the Holy Spirit would lead them into truth. They're captured. Captured. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. I don't want to be one of those in verse 42. I don't want to be one who causes these little ones, a person who might be weak in the faith, immature, pre-Christian, seeking, learning, looking to us. I don't want to be guilty of leading one of them not just astray, but causing them, causing them that... How did you get here? Because Tim Campbell guided me in this direction. I don't want to be that. Do you? No. Lord, help me. Help me to be more conscious of the power of my influence.